you're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. This is Sarah, and my co-host Molly and I are interviewing Jenny Hahn today. She um, recently published the book, Suge. So, Jenny, how are you doing today? I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for being on the show. Um, so, how did you decide that you wanted to write for young adults, and when did you begin your writing career? Um, well, I've always known that I, I love to write, but I just didn't really think that it was a viable option for a career. It seems sort of pie in the sky, you know, um, not very practical. So I was thinking I would go into book publishing. Um, I didn't know specifically what I wanted to do within, within um, publishing, but I knew I was into editing, and I just wanted to be any part of the process. So then I couldn't find a job after I graduated. And I was living at home, and it was hard. Um, so I thought I'd apply to grad programs, and um, I ended up getting into my first choice, which was um, the new school, Writing for Children. And um, I decided to go with that over the different ones, which they weren't all actually writing. Some of them were teaching, reading, and writing, or um, studying literature. Um, but I knew deep down I really wanted to actually be a writer, but I was just afraid. So... I went with it. Um, what was your inspiration for the story and characters in Shug? Um, I didn't really have an inspiration, per se. It was actually, it started um, in a writing class I took in college my senior year. And the instructor used to write, like, a little phrase on the board at the beginning of every class. And then you would just take off and start writing. And that day it was um, under the tree. And I just started writing about this girl sitting under the tree with a boy that she liked eating a popsicle. And so it really... It just started there, and I just saw the um, character really clearly in my mind with her scabby knees and mosquito bites. <laughs> so, um, and then, it, yeah, it just took off. Um, and I don't really outline or plan things out, and it kind of just formed as I went along. So what else did you learn from your um, writing program, the MFA program you were in? Did you just kind of end up writing things that you used later, or did you find it useful in other ways as well? Um, it was definitely useful for me. I think... I went into it being unsure because I've only taken one writing class to that prior. And um, when I started, I didn't know what to expect. But really, I feel like it taught me how to be a reader as well as a writer, meaning um, how to read critically and um, dissect stuff and really get into it. Um, and it definitely helped me do that. And also just sort of sharpen my craft. And so I feel like the biggest thing was making connections with people um, who are now my writing partners and people who I trust to read my stuff and critique. And we now even meet uh, once every two weeks and just um, critique each other's work and go over stuff and talk about how things are going with our writing lives. Um, and so that's been really terrific. Um, why did that particular piece that you're writing for your course appeal to is something you really wanted to expand? Um, was it the setting and or was it just that the early part of the story spoke to you in a way you thought you could just do it and you tried, or what was it? Um, yeah, I think it was, I mean, it's the first thing I've ever written and finished. So it just, I just started and I knew I just couldn't, couldn't stop. I wanted to stop at points. It was really difficult to get through it. I think, um, because I'd never completed anything before, but, um, I just knew I wanted to tell the story and I knew I was in love with the characters. So that was, you know, important to me. How much were you drawing from your own experience in your writing and also in the southern, choosing the southern setting of your novel? I think um, 
I draw from my own experiences a lot emotionally, but not necessarily literally. You know, I'm Korean American. You know, my parents, my mom's not an alcoholic, and my dad doesn't go away in business. But I think emotionally, I can understand um, just the feelings that she went through, feeling like an outsider, or um, feeling like she had to sort of take care of things at home, things like that. And so I was able to relate my own experience to, in that way, but not necessarily, you know, in the literal sense. And what was the second part of your question about, about oh, just South? In the Yeah, the, was the Southern setting just because of your own experience, or did it appeal to you for other reasons as well? Yeah, I mean, I'm from Virginia, and I went to, went to college um, at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So I love the South. Um, I'm just really, I feel like I'm very drawn to it. The cadences of the language and just the colorfulness of the culture. I feel like it's just sort of a spicy kind of place that's really rich with history, um, a history that's dark at times, but also, I think, hopeful. So I just love to write about it. It seems that Chapel Hill is a, like, YA powerhouse of... (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, Sarah Dustin, who I love. And Alex McCauley, we just interviewed, and he... He's a grad student in Chapel Hill. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know, it just seems like Chapel Hill has come up in so many interviews, and it's just like, wow, that's where you need to go. Apparently. Um, it's, it's funny that there aren't as many, there aren't that many young adult novels really set in a specific Southern setting. Most of them are just in suburban, bland sort of area, or some of them are in urban areas. Do you think that that Southern setting really adds something to the book aside from a sense of place in the way that the narrative is told or the kind of characters you could include? I think so. I think um, coming from Virginia, I I feel like I could really relate to the feeling that I would often hear around, which is that, oh, I can't wait to get out. You know, I really want to go up north. I want to go to New York. I want to go to the city. And so I think that's sort of a feeling um, that permeates like a lot of people living in small towns in the south of, of having this idealized notion of different places. And so that was important to me as far as um, the mother character was concerned. So cause I understood that, that feeling of like restlessness and not really appreciating the surroundings that you're in, I guess. So, wait, what was it? What <laughs> that was it. It was just whether you that thought it? that okay. yeah, it helped it, you with your characterizations, just knowing that you had that sort of spicy, as you said, setting. Yeah, and I think a lot of times um, within children's literature and YA, a lot of times people will say to set it and sort of like any town USA, so that way kids can feel like they can really relate um, and be in the shoes of the narrator. But to me, I feel like it doesn't really matter too much um, where it is. I think that certain feelings are universal that you can understand no matter where you're from. So, um, I think that it kind of allowed for you to write about like a younger 12-year-old than we tend to see in oh, yeah, YA. With like- absolutely. I mean, I am a... Um, quote-unquote, paid companion to a 14-year-old girl in Brooklyn. And she's just so sophisticated and savvy in ways I think, um, you know, kids from different parts of the United States aren't having, like, access to culture and seeing things like, you know, homeless people or, you know, robberies or whatever, you know, on the street. You know, I mean, that's it's different sort of teenagehood, I think, and growing up. So... She definitely, I think Anne Marie is definitely naive and innocent in her own ways, and it's part, partly because of where she comes from. 
Um, one of the more worldly references that you might not expect 12-year-olds to recognize in your book is that to the color purple, mm -hmm. um, the source of Anne-Marie's nickname of Suge. Why did you include that reference, and how did it help you shape the characterization of the mother or of Suge, if at all? Well, it wasn't really um, a decision that I had started with in the beginning. It just sort of happened the more I understood who the characters were. Um, I remember I read the book when I was, like, 13, and I, it really spoke to me on a lot of levels, and I felt like I could really relate to Celie and the woman um, in that book, and I just feel like it's so fabulous and so full of, like, aching and hope and sadness, and I feel like those feelings are at the core of most women. So, you know, when I was writing Suge, I felt like um, every woman, you know, young and old, so, you know, Mama, Emily, you know, Celia, Elaine, all of them, could understand that and you know so yearning for things to be a certain way and wishing for your life to be different you know i think that kind of stuff is um just i guess universal so for me that's that's why it it really that's why i chose to include that the main character Anne Marie in your book is a Caucasian girl and she has a Korean best friend. Um, and you yourself are Korean American. It mm -hmm. seems like a lot of authors that are Korean American or Indian American or blank American, you know, fill in your ethnicity often write books that are really more about being an outsider or, um, in a community of people of, you know, like ethnicity. Why was it, um, that you didn't really want to focus on that sort of thing in your writing? And do you plan on focusing on, um, sort of the ethnic experience in the future? On Shug's? Yeah. Um, well, I think when I started writing the story, it was, you know, I, I saw this girl in my mind, and she yeah. was white. Yeah. She was not, you know, Korean-American. And mm -hmm. a lot of people have asked me that, in particular, um, different minority uh, writers or readers would ask me why I didn't make her Korean-American. And I just feel like, you know, for this story, this is just who she was, and this is how I saw her. So I couldn't just um, transplant, you know, an ethnicity upon the character. And I think if I'd written a story about a Korean-American girl in a small southern town, it would have been a completely different story from a really different kind of perspective. Um, the focus would just be different because the narrator's voice would be so different, you know, her worldview and just the lens through which she looks at everything. So for me, you know, it just was natural, and that's just the way it happened. Mm -hmm. But in future, I think... Um, I mean, I'm working on a novel right now that's young adult um, with a Korean-American protagonist. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really enjoying doing it, but I feel like in a lot of ways it's, it's even more difficult to um, to get into your own culture, I guess, and to be critical and um, look at it from sort of a, a third-person point of view. Um, and it's just a lot more personal in some ways also. I think... You know, like it or not, there is a certain responsibility involved with being a minority writer that people will think that just because this character is this way or her family is this way, that means like all, you know, Korean American families eat rice <laughs> for breakfast. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, and that's just not the case. I think everybody, every family is different, mm -hmm. you know, but so I feel like with this story I'm working on, I'm a little nervous about it. It's a little harder for me to get into because um, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of pain, a lot of angst there that you got to work through, I think, when you're working with um, things that are that personal. Not to say that Shug isn't personal to me, because it definitely is. I think probably will be, like, the most personal novel I'll write, because it's like, the first one, and there's not as much a filter, 
you know, but it's different, I think, when you're talking about um, your culture and how you grew up and your family and all that kind of stuff. How did the character of Elaine come into your mind or work her way into the narrative for you then? It just, that just happened really naturally for me, too. Um, I just, it just happened. It was not like, oh, I'm going to put a Korean-American character in it. It just, I just felt like she was. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she was. Um, how did you work on getting the voice of a 12-year-old girl, not only in your initial writing, but in editing and things like that? Um, you know what? Sadly enough, it wasn't that hard. <laughs> people always ask me, people email me, like, how did you know? And I'm like, um, you know, I don't think my actual <laughs> mind and maturity level is that different. So it wasn't hard for me to tap into those feelings. Um, I can understand the angst, even as a 25-year-old. So, yeah. And also, one fun thing is that I've kept a diary since I was seven, and so it was really fun to kind of go through and look at my old diaries and relive and remember some of the more painful moments um, and just kind of double-check, I guess, how it felt when I was at that age. So how did you um, choose to write about a 12-year-old when so much of teen fiction is um, about the high school experience? Were you... Our, our guess was that maybe it was to trace these, like, high school issues back to when they really, you know, start to come out. Or were you worried about when you were trying to get the book published that maybe you wouldn't get um, recognition or um, um, a chance because of it? No, not at all. I wasn't worried about it. Um, I think I chose to write about this at this age because I just feel like, personally, I think at 12 is this really exciting time. I feel like it's, you know, really scary and terrible, but also wonderful. Um, I think it's like an awakening time when your eyes are just being opened to all sorts of new things and you're starting to, starting to question the way that you live your life and the way other people live their life. So for me, Shogun was just sort of paying homage to being 12 and to how it felt, where everything feels so crucial and apocalyptic. You know, when something awful happens, it, you know, it cuts really deep. And I think a lot of times people try to min minimize those feelings you know, and think, oh, you know, that was puppy love, oh, you know, big deal, somebody just do a dance. Well, you know, I think it, it is a big deal. I think, you know, those feelings are, it's all relative. For me, like, you know, being 25, if I get dumped or if I get yelled at at work, you know, that's a big deal to me. But then to a 12-year-old, like, that's their whole world. So I think it's, it's important to be respectful of that and to not try to diminish, you know, how people feel. But in balance with those, you know, dance or first kiss type problems and experiences, you have a lot of serious sort of problems at home with alcoholism and abuse. Do you feel like the um, the balance of importance for 12-year-olds is that, that have problems like these, is that the parental alcoholism or the parental neglect is kind of just as important in that moment as maybe being picked on at a dance or called ugly might be in the next moment? I think so, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think... All of it, you know, is important, but I feel like that stuff like the boy-girl stuff and what happens at school and, you know, breaking up with a friend, all that stuff is, you know, what everything revolves around at that time. And it's like you spend most of your day at school, you're home for, you know, a couple hours and then you're asleep, but I don't think most 12-year-old people are sitting there talking to their parents at night, telling them about being, being humiliated at school, you know, and so all that stuff usually happens with your friends. So all those little dramas and the first that you go through usually are with your peers. So not to say that family stuff isn't important, but I think 
um, when you're 12, you know, you, you the most important people in your life usually are your friends. Um, did you research um, topics like parental alcoholism in your um, writing process, or is this just like from general knowledge you have on the topic? <laughs> well, you know, I'm from the South, so I have a lot of ex- personal experience with the drink and <laughs> <laughs> and what that means. So, you know, neither of my parents are alcoholics, but I've certainly been exposed, you know, to a lot of drinking and that kind of thing, and it was just sort of normal. Um, I think different cultures look at it differently. Um, and, you know, people in, let's say, Korea or England might not consider somebody being an alcoholic as they would, you know, in Pennsylvania. So um, I didn't really have to do any research for that. I just drew from my own experience. So one of the, the major, I don't want to call it a theme, but sort of plot points and is that Suge, um, the main character in Suge, is sort of traveling toward and thinking about her first kiss. Why do you think that's such an important experience growing up and that people um, remember forever? I, forever. I think, yeah, people do. Girls, <laughs> girls do. I've had some guy friends who are like, I don't even know. I don't remember. Wish but I girls, liars. Like, liars. those are like etched on your heart, those moments. <laughs> you know? So I think um, the first kiss, it's important. I mean, it's because it's, the first, but I think it also sort of sets the tone in a lot of ways for how you look up at guys and how you relate in a way. I mean, I know that for me, my first big crush, my first like heartbreak, um, was with a boy that we used to tease each other all the time, like we were in first grade, and we would just be really brutal and merciless. And even now, at 25, you know, I'll watch a movie or a TV show, and I'll love it when you'll see like the opposites attract, and he's got the push-pull, you know what I mean? And that sort of attraction where two people are sort of fighting on the outside, but on the inside, there's that, you know, chemistry. So I think those those first experiences definitely make a mark on who you are and how, who you become, I guess. Yeah. Suge is also dealing with, like, a crush situation on her childhood best friend, and their friendship undergoes, like, an extreme transition from elementary school into junior high. Mm-hmm. Um, is, what is your insight as to the difficulty of taking a male-female friendship across, like, the... Uh, the adolescent boundary. boundary. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sorry, can you repeat that last part of the question? Oh, just the boundary from, like, being a kid to, like, being an adolescent or a teenager. Why is it so hard to take a male-female friendship across that? I think that age, it's, it's so... I mean, it's such a hard age. You know, it's like everything's changing on the inside as well as the outside. You know, your body is changing and, you know, your hormones are out of whack and your emotions are running really high. And so it's when you put sex into that, meaning like, you know, boy-girl or whatever, then it just mixes it up even more. And I think, you know, especially also, not to be sexist, but I think isn't it like scientifically proven that boys are a little more immature and they're not on the same level as girls, I think. Um, Their brains you know, develop much more slowly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're at 12. I think boys are still sitting there playing with frogs and playing their video games and stuff. And girls at are... At 24, they're still playing their video games. <laughs> you know, so I think girls are thinking about things more. And, you know, maybe not to say that guys don't think about it, but they girls have that language to be able to express those thoughts and feelings. And they're also more loud. To express it, you know, and guys, it's 
it's not as cool to be talking about your feelings all the time or, you know, your emotions. And so I think it's just hard to connect, I guess. And I think even if you two, you two kids could connect, I think their friends and all the outside forces also make it difficult. Suddenly, you know, your mom's like, oh, who are you talking to on the phone? You know, do you like him as your boyfriend? And it puts this whole other spin on things when you're just, you know, talking to your best guy friend on the phone, and then suddenly other people are wondering, like, at school as well. So it puts a lot of pressure on it, I think. This reminds me of a conversation Molly and I had many times at the beginning of the summer where we were reading these books that had, like, a very mature younger brother who, like, it it seemed like the younger brother could be... He was supposed to be 11, but he'd be acting like he was 16, 17. And we were just like, no... Younger <laughs> brothers are never more mature than the older sister. Like it works with younger sisters, but yeah. definitely, you yeah. can't get these young boys acting like they older boys. They don't. They aren't that <laughs> observant. They don't know what's happening. I know, and it's funny. I'll go um, when I used to pick up um, my girl, the one I'm a companion to. Now I'm her tutor, but you know we've segued our relationship to that. But before, when I pick her up at school, I would see boys, and I was thinking that they were like in fourth grade, and she was like, "Oh, that's Connor." Oh, uh, you know, that's Billy or whatever from my class. And I'm like, what? These, <laughs> these boys look, you know, like literally half her size. She's 5'8", and they look like they were like 4'11 or something. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Um, were you writing, Shug, while you were working with this, with the girl you're a companion for? And is that where the, I mean, super-duper height came from for Shug? Oh, <laughs> no, actually not. Um, it was just happy circumstance. Yeah, I, yeah. People, a lot of people ask me that, too, thinking that, um, it's a lot easier for me to tap into the voice because, you know, I hang out with a 14-year-old girl. But in reality, you know, because she's completely different. She's, you know, urban and sophisticated and, you know, her concerns are very different than I think mine were when I was 12 and living in the suburbs. And I just wanted to get right to the mall, you know, to go to, like, Hello Kitty store <laughs> or, you know, be Dalton's or something, you know. And she can sit there and walk to the pizza place with her friends or go into the city and have dinner at like a fancy place. And those things were things I would never have dreamed of. So I think it's really different. It's funny how the things that, I mean, it's not funny. It's just that the things girls aspire to are so different where they're, depending on where they're from and their family. And it seems like for Suge, she's got this very sort of, for the town, she's in glamorous, educated mother mm-hmm. and this really popular sister and a number of friends who seem, at least to her, a little bit more popular than she is. Um, why do you think girls are so into cliques and that sort of social hierarchy? They're so sensitive to that, especially in middle school. And do you think it, it carries on even longer than that or starts earlier? I think um, it really, I mean, I think it does start earlier. I think I remember fourth grade, third grade, when things started getting a little dodgy and people started shifting into groups and people were being left out. But I think middle school is when it kind of comes to a help. Um, but I think it's because you know, when you get to middle school too, you're not, there's no assigned seats anymore in the cafeteria. You know, you don't get to, you don't, you get to pick who you hang out with and you don't have to invite everybody to your birthday, you know? So I think that's why at that age, it's all so crucial and it's all about survival, I think. I think the girls are trying to fit in and they just don't want to be the girl on the fringe. So, you know, running with a pack is way more comforting and you know that you're not going to be alone. Um, and if you walk into the cafeteria, you're not going to have to be sitting there searching for somewhere to sit. And I think that's like a terrible feeling. You get this panicky feeling in your chest as you're looking around, you know, looking for an ally or something. And when you have a click and you have people that who are 
somewhat comforting and people you can rely on to be there for you and have your back, you know, when things get dicey. You're listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. This is Sarah, and the interview that I'm playing back for you right now is one that Molly and I um, conducted with young novelist Jenny Hahn, um, who wrote a book that was recently published called Shug. So um, in a moment, we'll continue with that interview. If there's anything, um, you know, literary or otherwise that you feel like discussing, the phone number here is 734-763-3500. We have a podcast in the iTunes podcast listing. Um, If you search Living Writers, it should come up. Our website has um, a backlog of all of the interviews from the summer that um, Molly and I have done. And that is located at www.wcbn.org slash livingwriters. Um, Things that we have coming up in the future are an interview with Ruta Drummond, who is um, the children's and young adult buyer at Borders, um, and an interview with E. Lockhart, whose books published so far are Fly on the Wall and The Boyfriend List, and the sequel to The Boyfriend List, which is called The Boy Book, will be coming out in September, um, maybe on the 26th. So we're going to have an interview with her as that date approaches. Um, so that's what's up here at Living Writers. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Here's more from Jenny Han. Have you had much of a fan response to the book? Oh yeah, it's been unbelievable actually. Um, I, I feel funny saying the word fan even, <laughs> but I guess my fans slash readers um, have been so great. I've gotten all these great emails um, from girls anywhere from like 10 years old to 14 year old and. You know, they all say, oh, we relate to her so much, and we felt like, you know, she is me and I am her, and um, and that's so gratifying as a writer, because I feel like with Shug, that's really what I wanted to do. It was really important to me that a girl be able to read it and feel like somebody understood her, that, um, and to make some sort of connection with another person. I think that's the best part. So getting those emails, it's a, it's a real treat. Um, and then I have even gotten a call from moms and dads, and even a few weirdos, <laughs> or like fifty-year-old men, you know, fifty-year-old men, like, huh? Fifty-year-old men? Yeah, we're like, I like your picture. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love your book. Will you write me back? Stuff like that. That's, that was creepy. The first time that happened, I felt really <laughs> creeped out. So I didn't consider being um, a part of, I guess, the public. You know, I didn't think I was putting myself out there that much. You know, being a writer, you don't really, people don't recognize you if you go somewhere. You know, if you're on TV or something, that's a different story. But, so it was really kind of scary the first time that happened. <laughs> At the end of the book, this has a spoiler for those of you listening that don't want to know. You have um, one boy go to live with his father who has been abusive in the past. It seems a little bit cruel. Did you do that just for sort of verisimilitude to life or because you felt the narrative needed to go that way? Yeah, I mean, I didn't mean to be cruel. <laughs> I mean, not not cruel on your part, but just like, you know, right. cruel fate. You know, I think sometimes life is cruel, you know? I mean, to me, that was truthful to the story, and it was realistic, you know? And in that case, I feel like, you know, he thought that maybe his dad was changing, and, you know, maybe his dad changed, maybe he didn't. 
But I feel like I hope he did. You know, and to me, it was a hopeful um, ending and sort of a beginning for him, and that there's possible redemption there for his dad. Maybe not. You know, sometimes people change, sometimes people slip up and backslide or wherever. But I think, to me, it was just organic and natural to the story. And there was some concern with people who had read it um, as I was writing it, who were wondering maybe if it was too harsh, and they were saying that they can't really ha- they can't happen in a book for um, young readers because it's too too much. And I thought, well, you know, that happens in real life, so why am I trying to shield people from reality? You know, and I think a lot of times with books for um, young readers, people are always worried, you know, especially adults like parents, um, about things being too dark or um, too realistic, I guess. Um, and I just think that they actually have to go through with it, to go through it. So why not be able to read something that reflects their own experience instead of sugarcoating it and making it out to be like everything's all great in the end. So there's this fixation of Anne Marie's on what her first kiss will taste like. And we're wondering if this is, um, you know, coming from your personal experience of. No. <laughs> but you know, good girls never tell. I'm a good girl. <laughs> I'm going to keep my lips sealed on my own experience, but, you know, I wish. It was like <laughs> <laughs> as sweet as, as you know, cherry lifesavers and popsicles. Okay, so we have a feeling now that maybe your first kiss taste was kind of like ours, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you've talked a little bit about your next project and the protagonist for that project, but um, can you give us a little more um, um, of a of a tip on what's going to be happening next? Sure. Actually, the one I told you about isn't necessarily the one that. Um, it's going to be published next. Mm. Um, I started that one about two years ago, and I kind of put it aside when I got inspired by something else, which is uh, what I'm finishing up on right now. And it's about a, a girl named Dale, and she's super country, like country with a K. Not like Amory, who's sort of southern, but Dale's, you know, more, you know, definitely rural south. And so this story, it's about a 13-year-old girl named Dale, and it's about her life um, one summer um, where she, she lives with her dad and her sister, and her mom's taken off a while back. And so it's just a summer where a lot of different things start happening for her. And are there any other projects you've worked on or are working on right now besides no, that and the other book? Um, I've got those two in the pipe, and then um, you know I've got a bunch of ideas, but the hard part is actually getting it done. So... <laughs> I'm struggling at this point. <laughs> My editor's waiting on me <laughs> to finish the story. Well, we're waiting on Up-dale. you, too, so that's two more people putting pressure on. Plus all the, all the 12-year-olds. And the 50-year-old men who really just want a photo book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those dirty old men. Yeah. I get emails all the time asking for a sequel to Shug. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think you'll ever do one? I'm. You know what? Maybe if, I, if it's something if, that I really wanted to do or I actually had an idea. But, you know, that's not in the cards, like, right away. So, Mm. Um, we'll see. What are some of your favorite authors or influences on you as a writer around the books? Growing up, I definitely loved um, Barthie Clements. She wrote um, Nothing's Fair in Fifth Grade. Did you guys read that? What? Nothing's Fair in Fifth Grade. Mm -mm. I loved it. Um, And it was about this girl, Elsie, who was, like, obese. And all the girls were super mean to her. And I, I just loved it because it was, I felt, really truthful. And it didn't end with her suddenly losing a bunch of weight or, you know, <laughs> getting cool or something. You know, it was mm-hmm. really realistic but sad but funny. 
Um, that was one of my favorite ones. And then I love the Babysitter's Club. I definitely <laughs> read those like a demon. I would go through those like three in a night. Um, and Paula Danzinger, I loved her books. Um, E.L. Konigsberg. Um, and as far as adult books, I, I like um, To Steal Mockingbirds, one of my favorite books ever. Gone with the Wind. I like... Um, I'm reading Gone with the Wind right now. Are you? Yeah. For the first time? For the first time. Are you loving it or are you not? I'm loving it. Of course she's loving it. She she owns Dynasty DVDs. She's That's loving it. That's not true. I own Dallas, Dallas DVDs. DVDs. Oh. Sorry. You've watched Dynasty. Though. I've never watched Dynasty. Oh, anyway. Gone with yeah. the Wind, I think it's a masterpiece. I was in seventh grade and I read that book in two days. I was 12 and I could not put it down. And I sobbed. You know, when Melanie died, I hope that's not a spoiler to you. Hope you <laughs> <laughs> we know. <laughs> yeah, I own the DVD. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, I love it. Love it. So. Oh, it seems like you're very into Southern writers. <laughs> yeah, I love I love Southern writers. I love Southern books. Do you, really, do you consider yourself a Southern writer before you consider yourself a young adult author, or equally, or don't think about it at all? Or Not really. I mean, I think it's funny, because a lot of people will argue with me when I say that I'm from Virginia, and they're like, that's not the South. And I'm like, yes, it is. You know, it makes me angry when people try to deny my Southern heritage. But mm-hmm. I have to remind people that, you know, Richmond, where I'm from, was the capital of the South at one point. <laughs> <laughs> and we had the largest collection of Confederate memorabilia and you know, the Confederate White House all in downtown Richmond. So I think people get confused when they're thinking about Virginia, thinking about Northern Virginia. Yeah. It's not, you know, the same thing at all. That's, I don't associate with that. That's completely different. <laughs> but so, people, but some Southerners would, probably wouldn't consider you that Southern either because, you know, your your grandfather's grandfather's grandfather was not from there. He's a little well, bit yeah, of that I mean, shrug, too. But, you know, I think um, th- that's true. You know, I'm definitely Korean-American, but it's that's one of the frustrating things. And people are always like, you know, where are you from? And then I'm like, Virginia. And then they're all, no, no, where are you really from? Where are you from? really from? <laughs> yeah, and that's, you know... <laughs> That's not cool. No, it's not. But, you know, it's not. you're not the only person they do it to. I can tell you from personal experience. Yeah, well, so, you know, that's definitely one of those minority sort of things that you have to go through when you look yeah. different. But, anyways. You should so. try to exaggerate your accent so they can't play with you. <laughs> not just southern, like, slow draw. Yeah, I don't really have much of an accent at all. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for talking to us today. We're here with Jenny Hahn, author of Suge. And my name's Molly. This is this is not Sarah. I'm with my co-host Sarah. <laughs> and you're listening to Living Writers. It is the end of a summer afternoon, and the sun will be setting soon. Our favorite part of the day. We're eating popsicles, cherry ones. My shirt is sticking to my back, and my hands feel sugary and warm, but my lips are cool. The sun is turning that fiery pink I love, and I turn to Mark the way I always do. I look at him. Really look at him. We have sat under this tree, our tree, a hundred times or more, and he's always been the same Mark, the Mark I've known since we were five years old, and I told him my mama was a whole lot prettier than his. But today, at this very moment, he is different, and it's not even something I can explain, but I feel it. Boy, do I feel it. On the outside, everything looks the way it always does, but on the inside, it's like some little part of me is waking up. His hair is hanging in his eyes, and his skin is brown as toast. He smells the way he always smells in summer like green grass and sweat and chlorine. He's watching the sun turn its different colors, and he's all quiet and hushed up. He turns to me and smiles, and in that moment, he is so dear to me, I hurt inside. 
that's when I feel it. Like my heart might burst right out of my chest. This is it. This is the exact moment when he's supposed to kiss me. The kind of moment movies are made for. He'll look at me and he'll know, just like I know. Everybody knows that 12 is the perfect age for your first kiss. Except he isn't looking at me anymore. And he's talking. The big jerk is talking when he should be kissing. He's going on about some mountain bike his dad's going to buy him for his birthday. Man, it's going to be sweet. We're going to go on the Tukashani Trail. Hey, Mark, I interrupt. I'm giving him one last chance to make this moment up to me. One last chance to see me the way I see him. I will him to look at me. Really look at me. Don't see the mosquito bites on my legs. Don't see the ketchup stain on my shorts or the scabs on my elbows. Don't see the girl you've known your whole life. See me. See me. Yeah? He's looking at me. He didn't see me at all. I can tell he's still thinking about that bike. He hasn't even thought of kissing me. His mouth is cherry red from his popsicle. He looks like he's wearing lipstick. You look like you're wearing lipstick, I say. You look like a girl, a girl with really bad taste. I laugh like it's the funniest thing in the world. He flushes. Shut up, Amory, he says, wiping away at his mouth furiously. I bet Celia has some eyeshadow that would look to risk with that lipstick, I continue. Celia's my big sister and probably the prettiest girl in our town, maybe even the state. Mark glares at me. You're just jealous because Celia's prettier than you. I bite my lip. You should let Celia give you a makeover, I say. My eyes are starting to burn. When the two of us get started, we don't quit until one of us leaves crying. Usually it's Mark, but this time I'm afraid it will be me. Please, please don't want to be me. You're the one who could use a makeover, Mark says cruelly. You're really ignorant, Mark. You know that? You're a real troglodyte. You're so ignorant, I bet you don't even know what that means. It means a primitive, primitive person who dwells in caves. I only know because I looked it up after Celia called me one once when I tried to eat grapes with my toes. So what? I bet you don't know what it means either. I bet you copied it off your mom or your sister. I did not. I happened to be gifted. I never copied off of anybody, unlike some troglodytes I know. Last year, I caught Mark copying Jack Connolly's homework on the bus. He pretended like it was no big deal in front of his buddies. But when I threatened to tell his mom about Mrs. Finley, he started boohooing like a little baby. The dumbest part is that Jack Connolly is easily the least marked person in our grade. If Mark's a troglodyte, Jack is king of the troglodytes. Mark gapes at me and shakes his head disgustedly. Jeez, Anne-Marie, why don't you bring that up? You started it. I was just fooling, and if you weren't so dense, you'd know better than to criticize a girl's looks. It's degrading, and it's, well, it's sexist. I raise my eyebrows high and dare him to disagree. What a lot of crap. You can say whatever you want to me, and I can't say Jack to you, Mark says, shaking his head again. That's dumb. That's the way it goes, I say. And anyway, you didn't have to rub it in about Celia. I know she's prettier than me. My sister Celia is the kind of girl whose hair curls just right in a ponytail. She is smaller than me, the kind of small that boys want to scoop up and hold on to real tight. I am too tall for even my daddy to scoop up anymore, much less a sixth-grade boy. Boys like Celia. They go crazy for her sneaky smiles and sassy strut. They're always calling the house and making Daddy frown. Mama just smiles and says, The boys buzz around my Celia because they know she's sweeter than honey. I sure wish boys would buzz around me. On every Valentine's Day since the fourth grade, Celia has come home with pink carnations and solid milk chocolate hearts and at least one Whitman sampler. She always lets me eat the square ones with a camera inside, even though they're her favorite, too. The most I ever got in Valentine's Day are the Valentines the class got for one another because they had to, the Scooby-Doo or Mickey Mouse kind that come 24 to a box at a drugstore. Mark gives me his I'm sorry look, his half grin, half grimace, that's supposed to look like real remorse. 
He looks like he always does when he's messed up, like a puppy that peed on himself and is sorry, but will inevitably do it again. Mark Finley has been saying sorry to me his whole life. Sorry, Marie, he says. I scowl at him. Yeah, well, you should be. He's still giving me the look, and then he gets on his knees. Forgive me, Emery. Please, please forgive me, he begs, swaying back and forth with his hands clasped in prayer. He's so dumb. The thing I hate worse about Mark is that I can never, ever stay mad at him. I can hold a grudge better than anybody I know, but with Mark, it is truly impossible. He always finds a way to make me laugh. Oh, get up. Trying to hide my smile, I tear a handful of grass out of the ground and throw it at his head. He sees a smile that got away and looks satisfied. Then he shakes the grass out of his hair, the way my dog Meeks does after a bath. Where is Celia anyway? Mark asks, oh so casually, falling back onto the ground. Mark has had a crush on Celia since we were little kids. He's never said so, but he doesn't have to. He knows I know. She's in the mall with Margaret Tolliver, and then they're having a sleepover at Margaret's house. Margaret Tolliver is Celia's best friend, and sometimes they let me come along. Today was not one of those times. Oh, he says. It hurts to hear so much disappointment in that one little word, and I know he still likes her. Celia's 16, and we're 12, so you think Mark would know he doesn't have a prayer. And I guess he does know, but he still hopes. Next to the high school guys that like Celia, Mark looks like a little kid. I guess he knows that, too. But he still follows Celia around the same way old Meeks does when he's hoping for scraps. We don't say anything for a minute. We just watch the sun disappear. Then Mark stands up. I guess I better go home, he says. You want to come over for dinner? I think Mom's making spaghetti tonight. Mrs. Finley's spaghetti is the best ever, capital B, capital E. She makes the sauce from scratch and everything. Roasted tomatoes, fresh basil from her garden, sweet Italian sausage. Her secret ingredient is honey. It adds a sweetness to the sauce. Mrs. Finley's spaghetti is my favorite. I know this is Mark's way of making it up to me, and I want to say yes, but instead I say, nah, Mama's probably already fixed something special for me. This is a ball-faced lie, and we both know it. Mama hates to cook, and the only time she ever really bothers is when my daddy's at home. Daddy's in Atlanta on business for another week, so the best I can hope for is a peanut butter sandwich. And that's only if Celia bought bread today. But I sure as heck won't admit any of that to Mark. I'll probably be dining on extra crunchy gif tonight, but at least I won't have to have shaved my mama. Not that she would even be ashamed, but I know for a fact that she doesn't like the neighborhood knowing our family's business. Mama's big on pride. She's always telling me that a woman without pride is no woman at all. I know that I'm not a woman in the places that really count, but I can at least get the pride part right. Mark shrugs and says, are you going to go to Sherilyn's pool party next Saturday? Yep. Our friend Sherilyn Salini has a pool party at the end of every summer, right before school starts. It used to be the typical kid stuff, hot dogs and sharks and minnows, and neighborhood moms wearing one pieces with terry cloth cover-ups and matching terry cloth slippers, all except for Sherilyn's mom, who only wears dream bikinis with maybe a sarong. All the other mothers smile and pretend to like Mrs. Salini, but really... They think she is attractive in a used-up, tan-in-bed kind of way. I know because I heard Mary Stevens's mom say it at the 4th of July parade last year. Mrs. Fellini does have a tanning bed, but as I've heard my daddy say, she's still one good-looking woman. If my mother heard him say this, she would skin him good, but fortunately for us all, Mama does not attend neighborhood functions. I know what the other mothers think of Mama. They think she is stuck up and pretentious. They think she thinks she is better than they are. And it's true, she does. My mother, Grace, is very tall and very beautiful in an intimidating sort of way, the kind of way that says she knows it but doesn't give a hoot. Mama's hair is the color of wheat, the kind that gleams red and gold in the sunlight, and her eyes are dark green. My daddy calls her Grace Kelly, which Mama turns her nose up at, because, according to her, it's far too conventional. But I, I know she secretly enjoys it. 
she says that Daddy's no prince, and if she's going to be compared to anyone, it had better be Lauren Bacall. Daddy thinks that Mama is everything a woman should be, beautiful, clever, charming. Beauty has a way of making the bad things tolerable. When Mama tilts her green eyes at you, it's hard to remember why you're mad in the first place. That's her special gift. My mother is unlike every other mother in our neighborhood. She went to college up north, and she had the nerves come back all city-fied, putting on airs like she's Princess Diana. If you're wondering how I know all this, it's because adults think that kids can't talk, can't play and listen at the same time. Mama grew up with a lot of the other mothers in our town. You can just bet they were smug when she had to come back home. Mama reads Foucault, not Danielle Steele, and she makes martinis, not green bean casserole. In the kitchen, there are poetry books where the cookbooks should be. She doesn't have a dish towel with mallard ducks on it or a ceramic magnet that says, Home Sweet Home, on our refrigerator. Mama is always telling Celia and me that we are worth 12 of this town and that she'll disinherit us if we don't leave as soon as we graduate high school. Mama's half-heartedly invited to neighborhood parties like the Tolini's, but she never fails to graciously decline, and the other mothers never fail to be relieved. Last year was the first year Sherilyn's pool party was different. None of the other mothers were there, and Mrs. Tolini only came outside to serve lunch. I ate two pieces of fried chicken as opposed to my standard four, because none of the other girls were eating anything. We didn't play sharks and minnows, and all the other girls wore two-piece bathing suits and lay on deck chairs while the boys tried to splash them. I was the only one who wore the same one-piece bathing suit I had worn the year before. I told the other girls it was because I think bikinis are offensive and degrading to women, so I guess that means I'm stuck wearing my one-piece again this year. You want to walk over to Sherilyn's together, Mark asks? Yeah, okay, I say. Okay, then see you later. He pauses. And Anne-Marie, sorry about what I said before. I didn't mean it. He meant it. Some girls are pretty, and it's like they're destined for it. They were meant to be pretty. And as for the rest of us, well, we get to exist on the outer edges of life. It's like moths. They're the same as butterflies, aren't they? They're just gray. They can't help being gray. They just are. But butterflies, they're a million different colors. Yellow and emerald and cerulean blue. They're pretty. Who'd dare kill a butterfly? I don't know of a single soul who'd lift a finger against a butterfly. But most anybody would swat at a moth like it was nothing, and all because it isn't pretty. doesn't seem fair. Not at all. Mark heads for home, and I watch him go feeling the lump in my throat grow. I never knew love felt like cancer of the throat. Before he turns the corner, he waves, and I wave back. You're listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. That concludes our interview and reading from Jenny Hahn. Um, she was reading from her book, Shug, which was published this summer. We're going to finish off the show with some musical selections from the South to complement the setting of the book. I had a real good mother and father They surely stood the test And I are in bright glory and are sleeping on the Savior's breast. They set a good example for me, and they taught me how to pray. Now I 
mother's hand for me. Shake my mother's hand and tell her To the tail end of the Living Writers Show, excuse me, on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Um, we're just playing some music to finish out the show. The interview today was with Jenny Hahn, um, author of the book Shug. And um, if you missed it, you can check out our podcast on iTunes. Um, or go to our website at www.wcbn.org slash livingwriters.
Wednesday, August 16, 2006, this is Free Speech Radio News. From KPFK in LA, Amara Bogado. The 16th International AIDS Conference continues this week in Toronto. We'll hear about the International Indigenous Peoples Satellite. 
Intense fighting between the Sri Lankan government and the Tamil Tiger rebels resumes. And a new report indicates that rich cities face serious water shortages. All that and more after the headlines. I'm Shannon Young with the Free Speech Radio News Headlines. Philadelphia voters have filed a lawsuit against the state for allegedly violating its own election laws with faulty electronic voting machines. Dante Tosa reports from Philadelphia. The lawsuit filed yesterday is a legal complaint against paperless electronic voting machines. Co-counsel for the voters' plaintiffs, Marion Schneider, says the use of these machines violates the election statute code of Pennsylvania, which requires a permanent physical record of elections. Also, according to the law, machines should have absolute accuracy, but multiple independent tests have encountered severe security issues and faults in electronic voting machines. The nonpartisan legal group Voters Action found evidence of the loss of votes in four precincts in Pennsylvania, Berks County last year. 10,000 votes in Pennsylvania counties were not counted in the 2004 presidential election, and that 200 machines in Philadelphia experienced problems in May 2006 primary. The legal team is currently seeking for an expedited hearing so that the courts can rule on the case before the coming November election. For Free Speech Radio News, this is Dante Toza in Philadelphia.